glad to be with you guys. As he said, we from down in Des Moines, and we moved there about two and a half years ago uh, from Philadelphia with my family. And so a couple of things I want to do before we jump into Psalm 10. Um, first off, I just want to uh, honor the most important person in this room outside of Jesus Christ to me, uh, and that's my lovely wife, uh, Brittany Gray. We just got, uh, just celebrated our 10-year anniversary this uh, past August 15th, so, yep. <laughs> uh, and then also, you'll see the two ones with them, uh, Aaron and Zipporah, my two kids, and uh, two of the most brilliant kids I've ever met. Uh, I hope I'm not just saying that because I'm their pops, but... Uh, I am saying they are the two best-looking kids in the world because I'm their dad. So, um, uh, so that's my family. And then uh, one other thing I want to do that's extremely important to me. If you are an elder at this church, can you just stand uh, just for a second? If you're an elder in this church. Yep. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. So uh, First Timothy calls us to honor those uh, who are the elders amongst us. Um, and this is because they labor over the preaching and teaching of the word. Uh, I know these men. I know they cry over the word of God. I know that they have cried over this church. They weep for this church. They pray for this church. Uh, and no one celebrates this church more than they do when you guys are not around. And so let's do well by First Timothy chapter 4, by celebrating an, uh, chapter 5, by celebrating and honoring these men who uh, lead uh, God's church here at Boone, Iowa. So please, why don't we go ahead and celebrate these men. Yep. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate you guys. Um, well, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and dive into the Word of God. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 10, and if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of the Word. I'm just going to read this over you guys, but I'd love for us to stand as I read this. Uh, one last thing before we dive into the text uh, that I always just want to help us uh, with. Okay, so I know that uh, this is a different kind of cultural setting than what I'm used to always. Uh, and so for that reason, there's some education in that uh, we both have to give to each other. So I've learned a lot being in various contexts, and uh, I've learned a lot just in terms of what uh, contemplation means and what meditation means uh, from people who look like many of you guys. All right. So now I want to teach you a little bit about something from people who look like me. Uh, it's this thing called celebration, all right? And so celebration isn't just something that we do when our football team uh, scores a touchdown. It's not just something that we do when we're watching on TV our favorite basketball team score the winning basket. Celebration is something that you do whenever somebody wins. And because Jesus Christ has won the most incredible victory in the history of the cosmos, we are called as the peaceful people of God to be the most celebratory people in the world. So what that means is when I'm preaching the Bible... If you hear something that just kind of gets you in your soul, like the Spirit of God testifies that what is being said is actually true, I don't mind if you say amen, hot diggity, whatever you got to say, um, but I would love for you to respond in that way. It's a give and take, if you will. Uh, I was preaching to my, uh, my own church and just telling them about how the people of Israel were a boisterous people. So many times they were making loud noise. And so we as the people of God should be known by being a little bit louder than everybody else because we celebrate in a greater victory. Amen? So, especially when I get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I need to hear hallelujah, amen, not for me, but for the sake of the one who died and gave his life for us. Amen? All right. Psalm chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 1 and go throughout the whole psalm. And so I'm just going to read this over us. It says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. 
But the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of earth may strike terror no more. You may take your seats. This is the word of God. All right, so uh, not too long ago, a movie came out that was an extremely theologically rich movie, uh, and it was a movie uh, called Wreck-It Ralph. Now... Now, I don't know if any of you guys have seen Wreck-It Ralph, but uh, in that movie, there are various different characters. And one of the characters in Wreck-It Ralph, uh, his name is Fix-It Felix. You guys remember Fix-It Felix? Now, Fix-It Felix uh, had this pretty cool kind of heroic move that he has. He has this golden hammer in his hand, and anything that he touched with the golden hammer would be restored a hundredfold. And so there's even that moment in the movie where... Uh, there's like these Laffy Taffies hanging from like the the sky and they're like in this ditch and they need a way to get out. And so he recognizes that the Laffy Taffies start laughing when he gets punched in the face. So his girlfriend who's there punches him in the face. But after she punches him, she's like, ah, you look pretty bad. He's like, no, I can fix this. So he hits himself in in the face with the golden hammer and voila, his face is back to brand new. So She starts punching him in the face, and he starts hitting himself in the face with a hammer. She punches him in the face. He hits himself in the face with a hammer. Meanwhile, the Laffy Taffy's falling from the roof, and then they find their way out to rescue, all because he had this golden hammer in his hand. Now, as I was watching that movie, I found myself desiring to be like Fix-It Felix. That could you imagine the kind of love you would get from your wife if just every project in the house was just cop, 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 off the break? Could you imagine what it'd be like if you just get stuck in traffic and just like, I hate traffic. Bang! (laughs) Just coasting after that. Could you imagine what it'd be like if your favorite football team, and for me it's the New Orleans Saints, absolutely, were able to just fix all of the brokenness of Sean Payton and some of his schemes that just don't work all the time. You're just like, cacao! And all of a sudden, everything works out well. 
This would be an awesome existence for anybody in humanity. But the reality is, is that that is not how God made us. He did not make us with a golden hammer and our name is not Fix-It Felix. We have great limitations. Therefore, God has given us this tool called lament. And lament is simply the declaration of our inability, but of God's ability. Lament is the declaration of our impotence, but of God's omnipotence. It is a cry that says, we can't, but he can. But as soon as you hear that, you have to fight against something that we've been discipled in in our culture. And it's that, this idea that we can do anything that we set our mind to. Now I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but I can do all things if I just put forth the right effort. Until somebody is hit with cancer, until you lose a loved one, and you're met with your limitations. And this is the purpose of lament, to get you to understand that you can't, but there is a God who can, but our culture has discipled us against this. And this is scary because it's seeped into the thinking even of Christians like you and I. So when there's somebody who's experiencing great pain, who has experienced great injustice, when there's a people group who have experienced great oppression, our natural reaction to them is not to mourn with them, not to lament with them. Our natural reaction is to tell them how they can fix their problems. So when someone has seen another loved one shot down, we say, well, just move out of that neighborhood. When someone who has been, has been sexually abused comes to us, we immediately say, well, what were you wearing? Just dress differently. Just don't go out drinking as much anymore. And when those same people who have come from some of those communities that you're saying, just leave this neighborhood, try to leave that neighborhood, and even a nation, we say to them, well, just do it legally. And we have this just do it mentality, just do this, just do this, just do this, and we oversimplify their problems. And when we do this, friends, we trade in the gospel of grace about what God has done for us with some Nike brand form of evangelism that says, you just go do it yourself. And this is not what the church has been called to. We've been called to be a compassionate, loving, and listen, empathizing people. We're called to empathize with people. But for us who are middle class evangelicals, this is very hard. And because empathy is something that is very difficult for us, it is hard even for us to hear a lament psalm with the right emotion. When you haven't really gone through pain, when you haven't really gone through injustice, when you haven't really felt oppression, it's hard for you to really empathize with this psalm because this psalm is not written from the perspective of those in power, but it's written from the perspective of one who is in pain. And because of that, it's those who have been through great difficulty, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, that can read something like Psalm 10 and immediately get it. We have to do work to get it, but they can immediately connect. Why? Because those who have been oppressed or experienced injustice can easily see oppression or injustice in the eyes of someone from a mile away. They can hear it in their voice. There is a built-in empathy when you've gone through something that is hard and difficult. And it allows for you to empathize with texts like this. See, those who have gone through great pain, great difficulty, great misery, 
those people might speak in different tongues, but they have a unified dialect. Voicelessness is the universal language of the vulnerable. And there's a sense in which those who are vulnerable will always feel silence. And when we oversimplify their problems, it's like us placing a mute button on them and their injustices that they're experiencing. But the Bible calls us to something different. By the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God would come and become a man so that he can, listen, empathize with what we've gone through. The Bible calls us to be incarnate with people in their pain and in their misery, to mourn with those who are mourning. And if we were just to do that for a time period, just to experience what they're experiencing, to try to feel what they're feeling, to in a sense put on their sneaks, on their gear, if we were able to do that, I'm telling you, we come to a place where we feel like we can't fix it. We come to a place where we feel hopeless. We come to a place where everything seems more and more desperate. And friends, this is actually a good place to be. Because it's in that place of desperation that God meets us most. See, if we were able to just for a few moments put on the shoes of the vulnerable and were able by some act of divine grace to feel what they feel, we too would feel that hopelessness that they feel. But by God's mercy, who is the loving one and the eminent one, he can speak to us in such a way that after I've given up all hope on society and I've even given up all hope on the church, I can somehow muster up the faith to look beyond the gloom of this world to the glory of heaven with tear-filled eyes. The only words I might be able to get out are the words of this psalm right here in front of us. Now, this psalm is broken up. In three ways. And it begins with a question, it moves to a characterization, and then it ends with a cry. And I'm out of your way after I just lay this out. This question that he's asking is, why, oh Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? See, it is not a question of God's transcendence. He gets how great and grand God is. It's not a question of his transcendence. It's a question of his eminence. I know you're great, but I don't know that you're near. See, I've heard many sermons about the fact that God listens to those who are righteous. His ear is open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. First Peter chapter 4, we get that. I feel that, but I'm just not sensing that right now. This is the heart of the psalmist. God, I know that you're great. I know that you can act, but I just don't see your hand manifest. God, and it's hopeless. So this causes him to question the Lord. And you know what I love about this? I love this reality that this is the inspired word of God. If you've been in that place where you're doubting and you just feel hopeless like that and you want to go before the Lord and ask questions of the Lord, God gives you freedom. He has inspired his own word to do so. And he moves from the question of the Lord to the characterization of the wicked. And the characterization of the wicked is broken up in two ways, their attitudes and their actions. And before we jump into the characterization of the wicked, 
Here is going to be the temptation. The temptation is going to be to look to them out there and to not us in here. N.T. Wright says that the line between justice and injustice, between what is good and what is evil, cannot simply be drawn between us and them. But it runs right through the middle of each one of us. In other words, the very injustice that you will want to cry out out there is the very injustice that your heart is manifesting at all times. See, so we as a people of God must recognize that we must be introspective. So if you are a nationalist, it's going to be very easy for you to say all those other nations out there and not look introspectively at the United States of America. If you are a fundamentalist, it's going to be very easy for you to say the world, the world, the world, and not look introspectively at the church. But again, 1 Peter says that judgment must begin at the household of God. If you are a narcissist, you're going to be like them, those people, and not recognize the very injustices and the wickedness in your own heart. So as we go through the characterization of the wicked, I want us to be clear. This is a call to be introspective with ourselves. Now, the first characterization of the wicked is their attitude. And look at what verse 2 through 6 says. It says, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Listen, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. The attitude of the wicked is arrogance. The attitude of the wicked is arrogance, pride, boasting, arrogance. And you can see how this arrogance is somehow woven into his atheism. For he says that all his thoughts are there is no God. See, atheism is the fuel of injustice, but it is the foundation of arrogance. Where people are godless, they lose humility. Because they no longer fear God, they turn to make man who is made in God's image fear them in terror. And there's a sense in which this is exactly what the wicked are doing. And you can see his boasting, right? And you can see why. Look at verse 2. It says, in the arrogance, wicked, you hotly, hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. But that's not what's happening. Verse 3 says this, for the wicked boast of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In other words, he's boasting because he gets whatever he wants. Everything that he wants comes his way. And he has no clue how to hear the word no. You ever just been in the store with like, and you just seen that mom who's just having it. I mean, she got three kids and, and there's just that one kid, Johnny. I hope no, no, there's no Johnnies in here. But like John, little old Johnny just like can't get right in the store. So she's taking him down every aisle and she's getting him a cereal that he wants. Takes him down another aisle, gets him a toy that he wants. Takes him down another aisle and, and little Johnny even likes fruit. So she gets him a nice luscious apple. But then they get down to the end of the line. You know little Johnny has to get this one thing. He has to get some bubble gum. And she says, not today. 
And though she has been saying yes all of that time, that one no overshadows all of the yeses. Why? Because little Johnny can't hear no. The heart of the wicked is very similar to this. They can't hear no. So they force themselves upon people. They do whatever it takes to get what they want, even if it means trampling humans in the process. This is the heart of the wicked. Gets what he wants, he does whatever he wishes, and he brags about it. And we need to be very careful because we as a culture actually encourage this type of thinking. See, we live in a culture of meritocracy that whatever you have is what you've earned. So therefore, if you are successful, it's because you've worked hard for it. And if you are not successful, it is your fault. We live in that kind of society. So there is fame towards the haves and there's shame towards the have-nots. And in this kind of culture, the church has taken this thinking in. And we need to be very careful that by mere proximity, we don't get infected by the attitude of the wicked. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 makes it clear he's talking to a wealthy church, not only wealthy in their material possessions, but in their spiritual gifts. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what do you have that you have not been given? Why then do you boast in it? See, the heart of the wicked is to boast in what they've gotten because they forget that they were actually given those things. So, we see the attitude of the wicked, but he also... We also see the actions of the wicked. I want you to look with me in verse 7 through 11. And this, this part of the text is one of the most difficult parts of the text because it really does speak to us. So beware. It's almost like, y'all, y'all know them like signs where they got them just ugly dogs? <laughs> well, that like beware sign. So this is, this, I'm just letting you know, proceed with caution to the rest of this text. Because it says more to us than it says to them. Listen to what it says. It says in verse 7, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. See, not only do we see that his actions are done by what he does, but first we're going to see that his actions are done by what he says. Notice this. It says his mouth is filled. I, I want you to get this picture almost of overflowing with deceit and cursing and oppression overflowing y'all ever uh went to like youth group and maybe if you're like in a different generation y'all had healthier youth groups but we have like youth groups in our day where they have this game where they're like have these kids pal as much of something as they possibly can in their mouth so i've been to them where it was like warheads and you know i don't know if y'all know warheads very sour so you would pl- have them place as many warheads as they possibly can in their mouth. And there's just saliva and just spit just falling out of their mouth. And they try to talk. And by the time they get the 65th warhead in their mouth, they can't say it because the warheads are left. And what the text is saying is that the wicked are not, don't have mouths filled with warheads. They have mouths filled with lying and cursing and deceit and oppression. You need to be careful if it's hard for you not to tell a lie. Where it's like you just got to tell a lie every two seconds. Probably means you just need to do one of these, John. That's what my mom used to say. 
She had one symbol. I knew exactly what that meant. Mouths filled with cursing and deceit. And Jesus would take it farther, for he would say that what you say out of your mouth actually flows from your heart. What is your heart? Where is your heart? Is your mouth filled with negativity? Is your mouth filled with lying? Is your mouth filled with just talking down upon people? Where is your mouth? What are you feeling? There's a need for us to take a step back and have a heart of compassion and care and truthfulness towards those who are experiencing great pain and misery. But not only do we see the wicked in their actions by what they say, but also what they do. Look at verse 8 through 9. It says this, he sits in ambush in the villages. In the hiding places, he murders the innocent. And and, and if you look at the, the idea of villages and hiding places, The villages were those places that were poverty impacted. This is not where the wealthy people live. This is where those who were poor lived, those who had no way of protecting themselves. And so the wicked sit in ambush, he says, in the villages. In the hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. Do you notice the language there? This is intentional entrapment. This is premeditated persecution of the poor. There's a sense in which everything that he's saying can be characterized by these two words. They are covert and corrupt. Everything's done in the shadows. Because they don't want anybody to see the depth of their unrighteousness. When I think about this idea of of sexual trafficking, I didn't quite know just how pervasive it was in our region. And it's always done in the dark, always done in secret, extremely corrupt. And that's the explicit form, but we who would participate in pornography are implicitly participating in the very same corruption. And do you notice that the adult industry, the porn industry, has, is characterized by the very same thing, being covert and corrupt? It's all built upon stores with black windows. It's all built upon what we do at nighttime. Everything's covert and corrupt, so we are implicitly, as a culture, participating in this type of corruption. And it's sad, and it should grieve us. And we as the people of God should be the first to call that an injustice and call the church to repent. Now, I want you to see that after we see the wicked's actions based on what they say and what they do, we now see the effect of their actions in verse 10. Notice this. And I want you to just not just hear this, but feel this. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Yo, this is how the helpless feel. They feel crushed. They feel pressed down. They feel torn apart. And at the end of the day, it feels like God doesn't have his eyes on them. This is the position some of you even feel right now. Of going through great pain and misery and it feels like no one's watching you. 
Uh, there's another theologically rich movie made from the same company. It's called Toy Story 3. Now, in that movie, it, it, it was what I felt should have been the end of the Toy Story series. Uh, because you get down to the end of the movie, and all of our friends that we've, like, grown up with are now on this conveyor belt at, at, at a waste management facility. And they are surrounded by things that are being literally crushed, things that are being tread to pieces, and then finally they make it out of all of that just to find their way into a fiery furnace. Now, as they're like literally sliding down into the furnace and you believe it's over for Woody and Buzz Lightyear. I mean, it, it, it is like, it's over. Rex is done. I found myself like, and I don't know if you with me here, so maybe I'm just an emotional dude. Yo, I found myself welling up with tears. And I was embarrassed. Like, I'm trying to, like, preach to myself while I'm in the movie theater. Bro, it's toys. Bro, it's toys. Bro, it's toys. But I couldn't get over it. Like, how are they going to end it like this? I mean, they made it through all of that just to come to a fiery furnace. And friends, this is the picture of many in our society. Everything around them has been shattered. Everything around them has been crushed, and they made it out by the skin of their teeth. And if they don't know Jesus, they are on their way to a, an eternal furnace. And when they look to the church for hope, they are not met with compassion. They are often met with criticism. Guys, we need to provide them the hope of the gospel. And this hope is exactly where he turns next. Look at what the text says. It says, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. We've moved from the question to the characterization, and now we're at the cry. And the cry is broken up into two pieces, a plea and a promise. And here's the plea, arise, O God. It's the picture of what happened when Yahweh showed up on behalf of the Israelites when they were in slavery to the Egyptians. It's God showing up out of nowhere, that picture of Simba coming back to take over Pride Rock. I mean, he's coming back. Arise, O Lord. Deal with this nonsense. See, the wicked all this time have had their, had their head up high. And, they, and they're just a pomp about them, an arrogance about them. I don't know if you guys are real football fans, but you, if you're a real football fan, that means you love a team to death and you despise other teams. And there are some teams that I have despised. I despise the Patriots. I despise them. But there's one thing about the Patriots that bothers me more than anything else. It's the protection that Tom Brady's afforded. He just sits in the pocket with his head up high, knowing nobody ain't going to touch me. I am well protected. And there comes a point in time where you just want him to meet one defensive. J.J. Watt, just get him one time. No, I'm joking, y'all. I'm sorry. 
But this is the feeling that the psalmist has towards the wicked. They've been afforded all this protection. It's like they're untouchable. But God, I want you like Reggie White to bust through all their protection and destroy the wicked. Do you notice the text? He doesn't say, hey, can you just please put the wicked in timeout? Can you just give them a little tap on their hand like, no, no, wicked. Now he says, break their arms. God, break the back of injustice. Destroy oppression. All for your glory, God. Show them who really is boss. That's the cry of the psalmist. And you can see the plea is characterized by these words. Oh, Lord, our God, please do justice. But I want you to notice how he ends. Verse 16 through 18 says this. It says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of earth may strike terror no more. Do you notice the shift in his language? It was, oh, Lord, our God, please do justice. But now it is the Lord, our king, will do justice. He has pled with God. He is pleading. He is pleading. He is pleading. But in his pleading towards God, he's also preaching to himself. And he's preached himself to assurance that God the king will enact perfect justice. That's a beautiful reality of the text. Notice this. This is a lament. This is a cry of, I can't, but you can. That means his situation has not changed. He had no golden hammer to fix his situation, but his eyes are now fixated on the one who can. He says, the Lord, our king, will do justice. Guys, this teaches us something amazing, amazing, amazing about God. Until I die, we'll shout it to the rooftops. People who have come up with false gods can't even imagine a God as dope as our God. Because all these false gods have one thing in common. They're all good. But in their all goodness, in their omnibenevolence, notice this. They're only able to work with other people who are already good as well. Our God is different, y'all. For he doesn't have to work around evil. He doesn't have to work around pain. He doesn't have to work around, listen, injustice. But he can work smack dab through injustice. And you ask me, how do I know that? How do I know that? How do I know that? Because the greatest act of injustice ever committed was simultaneously the greatest act of mercy. Because this very king that this text speaks of came and died in our place. He took upon himself injustice. He took upon himself the very thing that we have committed against him. This is beautiful mercy. And it's horrific injustice. And God doesn't have to try to work around it. He can work smack dab through it. Going back to Toy Story, I'm glad if you've seen the movie. If you haven't, I probably left you with a cliffhanger like, man, that's a terrible way to end that whole trilogy off. In that movie, when they're literally sliding down into the furnace, and you're everybody in the theater is like, is this really how they're going to end this whole thing off? Out of nowhere, you hear this wonderful word, 
the claw. And it was almost like at the right time, the claw comes down, picks up all of our wonderful friends from Toy Story, and delivers them to safety. Don't you know that that is exactly the picture of the gospel that Romans 5 lays out? (laughs) That at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the perfect time, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At that time, he died for your injustice and my injustice. And he did so in an unjust way. He was unjustly tried, unjustly sentenced, and unjustly killed. But listen, it goes even beyond that. Because Isaiah chapter 53 says this, that he was oppressed and afflicted and he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is to be slaughtered and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In other words, he endured all of this just injustice silently. But we did say that voicelessness was the universal language of the vulnerable, right? So what this means is that this king came and took an elective course in voicelessness so that he could speak the vernacular of the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end with his death. Because, friends, if that was the case, while this is heroic, it's still tragic. But we don't believe in a tragic gospel. We believe in a triumphant gospel. For three days later, he was raised from the dead. And not only so, the text says that he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. He is king forever and ever. Amen. So here's what we must do then. With the mic of the cross in our hands and the loudspeaker of the resurrection, our assurance, we must speak with the amplified medium of the gospel on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves and the whole time mourning as we go. We must be a lamenting people for our Christ saw our sin and the things we did to him. And yet had mercy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And I just thank you for the fact that you, who had done nothing wrong, you who are innocent, you who are perfect, you who are righteous, died for an unrighteous people like us. God, we will never quite understand or be able to grasp your grace. But my prayer for our church and my prayer, especially even now today for Stonebridge, is that they would be a people who understand the grace that has been given to them and seriously lay that out to others. That we would be a more compassionate people, a more lamenting people, a people who are able to mourn with those who are mourning because we understand the grace and mercy that has been shown to us. God, you are able to do this. You and you alone by your grace. We pray all these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all God's people say, amen.